Well, good morning. morning. Welcome to Pentecost at the cathedral. Well done, humanity. You are two-thirds of the way done. Now, let me invite you this morning to take out this lovely red handout. You can see the color of it helps us celebrate this day. And let's see how Pentecost takes us two-thirds of the way through our journey. Two-thirds of the way to the new Jerusalem for all who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we all know that Jesus ascended into heaven 40 days after his resurrection on the day of Easter. During that time, Jesus repeatedly showed his disciples that he indeed had been resurrected, unlike Lazarus, who had been resuscitated from the dead only to die again. Jesus had been raised immortal. He had inherited what could only be described as a spiritual body. Now, spiritual body does not mean ghostly or ethereal. After his resurrection, Jesus was at great pains to eat and to drink and to be touched by his disciples so that they would know that indeed he had real flesh and real bones. But the material out of which he was made was no longer the stuff of this age. It was the material of the stuff of the age of the spirit. Hence, we call it a spiritual body. Now, the difference, you might say, between the stuff of the age to come and the stuff of this age is a very great one. When you contact my friend Paul Stallings and you invite him to come to your house to paint it, the minute he finishes the job, he looks at you and smiles because he knows in five years' time he's going to be back there again. For there is nothing of this age that does not decay, wear out, get dirty, and grow old. But you see, the stuff of the Holy Spirit, the stuff of that age which is to come, neither decays nor grows old. In fact, it lives on in joy for eternity. Thus, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus sent down upon the church an advanced taste of the glory of the age soon to come. In the wisdom of God, you see, there could be no better day for that to happen than on the day of Pentecost, which was a Jewish Old Testament feast. So for the next couple of minutes, I'd like to look at the festival of Pentecost in its Old Testament context. Now, in order that... God's people would not forget what God had done for them. God actually commanded them to think about redemption as occurring in three great acts. Just like we do with our church calendar here at the cathedral, so then in the Old Testament, God's people were actually to live through the history of redemption as they lived through their year. And three times every year, the people of God would gather together in three great celebratory feasts. 
At the first of the year was the feast of Passover. Now, I've made a little chart here so you can put all that information in one place. It was the feast of the Passover. And it was followed by a whole week of the feast of the unleavened bread. Fifty days, or the Pentecost, 50 days after that, they were all together for the feast of the Pentecost. And then finally, in the seventh month, they were to gather what was called the Feast of Booths, or not booze, booths. <laughs> the Feast of Tabernacles, or literally the Feasts of Living in Tents. Each of these feasts was a joyful celebration of what God had done for them. Salvation had been given at Passover. And they'd come through the deliverance at the Red Sea. Salvation had been sustained for them at the end of every harvest season. That was Pentecost. God didn't, you see, merely rescue them and say, well, hope things work out for you real good. To the contrary, God was present with them, protecting them, providing for them, supplying their every need. And then finally, in the Feast of Tabernacles, the people were celebrating that God had brought them out of an alien land, brought them out of Egypt, out of the wilderness, and finally had brought them to their own true home. And thus, through the year, through these three feasts, God's people would be reminded by God that year by year there were three essential truths that apply to any person or any people. One is this. In this world, we are slaves in the midst of a hostile land. We are desperately in need of redemption from our bondage. Two, for us to survive in the course of the world, we require the supply of our physical needs. But more importantly even than that, we require a guide and a law that will direct us in our lives. And then third, we are aliens and exiles. We are looking for a place that will be our real home, one that is properly fit for us to dwell in. Pentecost Day, then, in the Old Testament, was celebrated because God's people were two-thirds of the way through God's purposes in the world. They had been saved and they had been supplied. All right, now let's look at Acts chapter 2 then. Acts chapter 2. Pentecost came after Jesus had been raised as a new man of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had ascended up into heaven, and on the day of Pentecost, he sent the gift of the Holy Spirit to his redeemed people. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God had repeatedly promised that someday he would bring redemption to his people in a very much greater way than the first Passover and the Red Sea. This was the promise of my father, as Jesus put it, when he spoke to the disciples in Acts chapter 1. 
And this promise, when it would come, would be much greater kind of redemption than that that was offered in the Old Testament. So much greater, in fact, God was going to call it what? A new covenant. And this covenant wouldn't be established by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the precious blood of the Lamb of God. Now, in explaining this new covenant, Paul told the Christians, the Antiochian Jews, in fact, in Acts 13, Paul told them this, that by the blood of this new covenant, God would bring to them forgiveness and redemption from everything from which they could not be forgiven or redeemed under the old covenant, the covenant of Moses. So this morning, you and I are celebrating Pentecost because it means that redemption or salvation through Jesus Christ has been accomplished by the cross. But along with that redemption, God has entered into a new kind of covenant or relationship with us. And he has done so through the power of the Holy Spirit. He has taken for himself a church made of both Jew and Gentile, and he has called them to be his new covenant people. Now this covenant comes with wonderful promises. Promises of the Holy Spirit. I've given them to you there. Look at them. First of all, Because of Pentecost, God guarantees that he will sustain your salvation. If you came here this morning hoping, oh God, I hope I can make it. There's good news for you. You see, God just didn't forgive your sin and then say, well, have a great forever, Christian. Let me know how it goes. Send me a postcard or two. No, God has sealed your salvation in the power of the Holy Spirit. He has guaranteed your salvation. He will bring you safely home. Yeah, good. I should get an amen from that one. Now, secondly, your Savior has promised that he is going to be continually present for you. You don't have to wander out to the desert somewhere and say, is there God out here looking for me? I'd like to find you somewhere. God says, lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is the promise of Jesus Christ to you. He has said, I will never leave or forsake you. Remember that the next time you're stuck in traffic in downtown Atlanta. His promise is good. Thirdly, in the power of the Holy Spirit, he has guaranteed to give you what you need to navigate the uncertainty of this world and the deception of the evil one. Did you like the illustration on the front lawn of last week's sermon? (laughs) For those of you that saw it, go out that way and take a look. 
God says, I will guide you against the deception of the evil one so that you will not become a casualty at the great day of judgment. Just as God gave his law to his Old Testament people, so now God puts those laws deep into your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're no longer written on tablets of stone. They're written inside your heart. The day of Pentecost is in fact what makes possible the salvation that was accomplished on the cross. Without the Spirit of God, you would be none of His. And none of us here would have any hope of completing our journey were it not for the presence of the Holy Spirit. But, Christian, you've only come two-thirds of the journey. The day of Pentecost has come that you and I might also have a foretaste of the glory that is coming. And by tasting it, we might be encouraged and propelled and sent out in power on our way. But still, we need a place of our own. We have received salvation. We have tasted of the Holy Spirit. But still, we have no place. We have not yet been able to celebrate our feast of tabernacles. As the writer of the Hebrews put it, here we have no lasting city. For we seek a city that is yet to come. So this morning we're going to finish our study of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapters 21 and 22. For these are a vision of our city, the new Jerusalem, which is soon to come. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Revelation 21, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now what is this place? Could this place be the final feast of the people? Of God? You bet it is. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Literally, do you know what the words are here? Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will plant his tent among them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God and what follows here are images of the absolute wonder and delight of this place 
12 gates, each made of one gigantic single pearl. Streets of gold, and yet they're clear and shining like crystal. Parades of the great and the glorious of the world coming in to worship and adore and light, light, light everywhere and no darkness at all. Now before we go farther, let's take a moment to think. You see, what we have here is not a picture of these things. These are symbols of the glory that is to come. These are literary images. Now, where does this imagery come from? Well, it comes, first of all, from Isaiah chapter 60. I've given it to you there. And it comes from the prophets. And it comes from everywhere in the Old Testament. And that's one reason why we Anglicans want you to know your Old Testament too. Because without knowing your Old Testament, you can't enjoy your New Testament fully. So here it is, this new heaven and this new earth. And when does it arrive? What do the symbols tell us? It arrives at the end of human time. It arrives at the end of all half measures and half joys and partial satisfactions of the present age. It arrives when the currently decaying world has been made new. And what is the nature of this place? And notice that I use the word place intentionally. This is not a good thought. It is not a wistful hope. It's not a ghostly essence. It is a concrete fulfillment of what life is supposed to be. But life has never quite been this. Just as in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the sum of all the aspirations of what was good and right for the prophets and the seers and the psalmists. Here, the new Jerusalem is the sum of every perfection. Now, what is the nature of this place? This is the new dwelling place for mankind. It comes down from heaven. That is, it is a spiritual place. It is made of the stuff of the Holy Spirit. And it is a perfect place, therefore, for men and women who have received their resurrection bodies. Because these are the same bodies that the Lord Jesus Christ now enjoys. The body of the stuff of heaven. And yet these bodies don't have any of our current limitations. No decay, no pain, no sorrow, no wearing away, no knee replacements. It's chocolate cake and none of the calories. <laughs> and when should we come to this place? Who shall come to this place? 
Clearly, it is a place only for the people of God. All others are excluded. You see, those who dwell in this place are called the bride of the Lamb. You see why Christians so zealously guard this symbolism? There must be a differentiation of bride and groom. Yet these two are brought together into oneness with one another. The imagery demands purity, holiness. The bride must be holy in order that she would be fit for such a groom. The imagery speaks of the importance of monogamy. For the bride must be faithful to one alone. That is, the church must be faithful to her God. And what is the glory of this place like? It exceeds every human ability to describe it. It is every kind of superlative. Here we find, in fact, the gathering of all of God's people. For there were 12 gates of the Jews and 12 foundations of the apostles. God's people of all old and New Testament. If we read a little further on here, we would find out that the place is a perfect cube. And that is symbolic for the dimensions of the Holy of Holies. Recall that the Old Testament Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. Ten cubits by ten cubits by ten cubits. And that is the place for what? Where man meets with God. The New Jerusalem is a cube, and its measurements are a combination of three, the number of superlatives, times 12, the number of people, times 1,000, which, by the way, is the cube of 10, which means a very large number. And indeed, the city numbers millions upon millions of inhabitants. But above everything else, this place is the dwelling place of God. You see, the city needs no temple because God is in the midst of it. Here man experiences perfect face-to-face -face communication with God. Everyone whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And why should this place be the, the final chapter of human history? Very simply, because it is the answer to every human longing. You see, since the day that Adam and Eve were ejected from the garden, all human longing may be summed up like this, for those who are wise enough to understand it. Where shall a person find God? For you see, it is God himself who is the satisfaction of all human longing. 
In chapter 22, we're given a little different kind of symbol for this place. It is Eden restored. Man returning from his wandering in search of satisfaction. But you see, this place is much better than simply a return to Eden. Here you see, there's not a tree of life. There are trees of life. And these trees bear 12 different kinds of fruits, a different fruit every month. And they satisfy every culture, every people, every nation, whatever their longing and desire. Whatever your longing and desire. And even the leaves of the trees heal the nation of their unsatisfied longings. And those who are blessed enough to come into this place drink in abundance of the river of living water. From their exile away from the face of God, at last, God's people come to him face to face. His name is written on their foreheads. Glory, Christian! Doesn't the spirit of Pentecost make you want to stand up and say, Hallelujah! You can do that. Stand up and say, Hallelujah! Lord, I am ready. Bring it on. Bring it on now. Easy there, pilgrim. You're only two-thirds of your way through the journey. You see, between then and now, there is much work to be done. And here are your marching orders from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. First of all, you and I must be faithful. You see, the time for fence-sitting and tepid religious dabbling is over. It's time to choose up sides one way or the other. And that is why the angel says to John in 22.10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right. The holy still be holy. Either choose the dragon and his miserable rebellion, which is doomed to destruction, or reach out and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ with both arms. Do not be intimidated by the beast. Because it is all perfectly straightforward. Faithfulness will cost you your life. But here is your Lord's promise. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. 
Secondly, strive for purity. Do not be deceived by the false prophet. For blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have a right to the tree of life and may enter that city. But outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Thirdly, remain humble. (laughs) Yes, you've tasted of the spirit of Pentecost. Yes, you've experienced personally those moments that are the foretaste of the coming glory. Those moments which are heavenly bliss. But you and I ain't perfect yet. You see, God has much work to do in us so he can do his work through us. So keep pressing on, using the means of grace, repenting of your sins, walking with God. What is to come is so glorious, it reminds us how far we still have to go. Lastly, wait with hope and expectation through this present darkness. For the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let everyone who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The Lord Jesus Christ says to us this morning, Surely I am coming soon. And we who have the Spirit he has given us say, Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.